If you will turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 John. We're continuing 1 John. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, um, it will be, much of it will be on the screen, uh, or if you have a, a phone, you can use that as well um, to follow along with God's Word. But I would encourage, if you have one, to, to bring it with you each week. And we're in chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Grass withers. The flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. And as we come to His Word, let's pray and ask for insight into His holy Scriptures. Father, we do come before You. We thank You for this Word, and we ask that You would, one, that You would unite our hearts to fear Your name, that You would open our eyes to see, open our ears to receive the truth. Father, that you would fill me with your Spirit and guide me, guide my words. May they be words of truth, words that accurately reflect what your uh, Holy Word has for us today. May they be words that encourage and point to you. May people see more of you through these words this morning. Father, we pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Well, as a family, we've, we've been in the midst of sports, uh, in, in particular basketball as of late. And part of being in basketball, especially as it gets a little bit more competitive, is knowing who you're going to play, uh, what your team will be up against. Going in blind in any contest is not good strategy for victory. And so coaches scout the opponents and relay that information to prep the team. But it's more than simply knowing what you're going to go up against. It's also knowing what's expected of you as an integral part of that team. And and you know what's expected of you, and then you know how to execute what you are to do, and that will serve in many ways to instill confidence, to help you feel prepared for what's coming before you. And then, even if it doesn't work out perfectly, your coaches know that you worked your hardest and you were prepared. It's really vital for us to know what's expected and what we're going to be up against, not only in basketball, but really in all of life. 
We need to know what we are called to and what we will come up against in our striving to fulfill the calling as a, as a believer, as a follower of Christ. And in this section of 1 John, John does that. In some ways, two pretty simple things. He wants us to know what we are called to, and he also wants us to have confidence in our lives with Christ. He wants us to know what we're called to, and he wants us to have confidence in our lives with Christ. If you look at verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, this text starts very simply with a reminder of what John has already stated in this letter multiple times. In, in chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, there's the command to love the brethren. And if one hates his brother, John very clearly says he's not abiding or he's not walking in or remaining in the light, but he's rather walking and operating in, in the realm of darkness. And immediately preceding our text, John had addressed what, um, what we practice in life. Do we practice righteousness or do we practice lawlessness? And practicing righteousness, as he says in verse 10 of chapter 3, part of that is displayed through loving your brothers, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ in particular. Now, the four at the beginning of verse 11 serves for us as a grammatical clue. Would you see four? It tells you that, that what he's saying now, even though there's a slightly different slant to what he's going to, it's still related to what he's written before. And then he reminds them that what he is addressing has been known by them from the beginning. From the beginning. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. This call to love one another was heard in conjunction for them, really, with the gospel message, with the message that Christ died for them, that Christ um, paid for their sins and dealt with it, and that they are to, to repent and believe. This message of love was there. John wrote this in his second letter. Second uh, John verses 5 and 6, he said, he wrote, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. From the very beginning, we've been called to love. And so John also there, he connects love with keeping the commandments of God, which we're going to see in our passage as we move on through it. But love is, is also, he says um, that, that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And, but he, he goes on to talk about um, that, that love is only really love when it's in line with God's truth. When it's true. If it's outside of God's truth, which honestly is the only truth, you don't really have to say God's truth, no matter what you feel, it's not true love. Our love has to be in line with truth. And John is not just making this up in his letter because he feels like it. He's, he's following through with what Jesus has told him himself. He heard it from Jesus, John 13. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, we are to follow in the example of Christ. We are to follow the, the, the way, the truth, and the life in how we love. And you could also go to John 15, verses 12 to 17. Jesus there has his call to love. And then Christ also in that alludes to his laying down his life for the brethren. And then what follows in our text in 1 John, though, from verse 12 through 15, is John exhorting 
um, really putting an exhortation out to the readers and also telling them the, uh, the, the implications of loving and not loving. Okay, so look at verse 12. We're going to read 12 through 15 again. It says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, John first alludes back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4 and Cain, the first murderer to draw at his point. And, and with this is a connection also to the idea of lawlessness that we talked about previously, of those who want to be their own law. They, they, they reject everything of God. They want to be their own standard. And the fact that those who are lawless are of the evil one. Cain really, in, in many ways for John, is the poster child of lawlessness. Um, he resented Abel for the fact that Abel's offering of the firstborn of his flock was regarded by the Lord, while Cain's offering was not regarded. And Cain was angry at that. Verse 6 in Genesis 4, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain was angry at his brother. His heart was revealed. Cain, it was revealed really that Cain was devoid of both faith and love. And this tells us something that John moves us towards in this. One commentator said, Cain's motive for killing his brother reveals a foundational spiritual principle about life in this world. Those who do not do what is right hate those who do. You see, Cain defied God despised his brother, the one who actually offered his sacrifice by faith. You can look at Hebrews 11.4 and see that. That's why his deeds were righteous. That's why his offering was accepted. It was offered by faith. But Cain's offering itself was self-centered. It was for Cain, and he couldn't stand his brother being accepted, so his hate actually moved from just an emotional hate to physical murder. And John points all this out of this hatred, so it's not a surprise to the church. The world will hate the church. Now, this, this does not mean that there's always out-and-out out violence and murder at all times against the church. It's not what he's saying. But that the world is filled with those who reject God and in some respects hate. They hate the church because at the root, they don't want to be exposed. They love the darkness. They don't want the light. John recorded this of Jesus in John 3, 19 and 20. Jesus said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. They hate it. They hate the church because the church exposes. The church that proclaims the light of the world. And actually, if, if we would have taken time and read John 15, 12 through 17, where Jesus gives this command to love, the very next section in John 15 is Jesus warning them that they will be hated because they've hated him. They hated him because he quite simply exposed their sin. He shined the light on them. 
And John, in this letter, has in some ways been shining the light on the ways of those who left the church, the secessionists, those who, who went away, the false teachers. They're actually, he's saying, following the way of Cain. They are murdering, you know, not, not necessarily with physical murder. We, we didn't see that in the letter. But honestly, in their teaching, in their falsehood, in, in what they are teaching against the way of Christ, they are actually seeking to kill. They are promoting wickedness and evil and lawlessness, which is truly a murdering of the soul. And those who do this, those who live in lawlessness, John says they're abiding in death. They're abiding. They're remaining in death. That's not a, that's not a great picture. It's not a great idea. And he tells us, though, he tells us, whoever does not love abides in death. Yet he also expresses confidence in his readers. He, he, he jumps right in at this point in time, and he says in verse 14, we know, though, that, that we have passed out of death into life. Yes, they abide in death, but we know that we have passed out of death into life. Now, how does he know that? The very next phrase says, because we love the brothers. The telltale sign for John that people have, have passed out of death into life is love. Do they, do you love your brothers? That is a picture that you have moved from the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The language of passed out of death is taken straight from Jesus, John 5, 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's the glory of a relationship with Christ. It's life. It's new life. This is eternal life, knowing Jesus Christ. And it's a life of love, though. It is a life of love. And then John emphasizes his point that, that hating one's brother is murder. That any person who hates clearly shows that there is no eternal life in them. No life of Christ abiding in them. The general idea he has addressed in chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. He will again in chapter 4, verse 20. That there is no vital relationship with God in the person who hates his brother. Okay, it's pretty clear for John. If you hate your brother, you are showing that you have no vital relationship with God. So, what have we seen so far in this? Well, if you do righteousness, which is what a Christian practices, and which is something that is exemplified by the love of the brethren, don't be surprised if the world hates you. The system of the world will reject and despise your righteousness, the, the image of Christ in you. Yet at the same time, and John doesn't say this clearly here, but Jesus has said it, our love will be an apologetic to the world that we know Christ. It will be an apologetic to the world that we know Christ. And then we come to John giving us the example of Jesus and what this love of brethren actually entails. Because it's one thing to say, love the brethren, and just let it hang, okay? Because maybe some of you like that nebulousness of, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I love. <laughs> John's going to tell us a little bit more about that. Verse 16, by this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus laid down his life and we are to lay down ours as well, but what in the world does that actually mean? Does it mean that we must give up our lives, that we must physically die to love our brothers? Is this the heroic rush into the, the, the burning building to save a family out of it or, or, or you know, pushing someone out of the way of an onrushing car and, and taking the hit for them? Is that what this means? Because I know many men who wouldn't hesitate to do that for their family, let alone many women. But I'm pretty positive this is not what John is talking about, besides the fact that there were no buses back then. But this is not what he's talking about, at least not mainly. This is not what laying down one's life tends to mean for a shepherd. Laying down one's life, if, rarely if ever, meant giving up your life. If you as a shepherd died protecting your sheep, they're not protected anymore. You've left them vulnerable. Okay, uh, shepherds rather spent their lives and their energy caring for the needs of the sheep in order to keep them safe and alive and to lead them to good pasture. The, the, the phrase, to lay down life, refers to taking a risk for another, even hazarding one's life for another, but not to a sacrificial death. See, the next verses for John make that clear. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Laying down one's life is caring for a brother or sister in need. Meeting that need when you have the ability to do so. Not doing so, he says, is closing your heart against the needy brother. Now that phrase, closing your heart, there's some background to that. Uh, If you want, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy 15 or just follow along as I read Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 11. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, well, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. And the context there is that every seven years, the, the debts are forgiven. And so why would you want to do it? Because then they're never going to repay you. So it's betraying a heart there. And he goes on, he says, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The Lord made it pretty clear there, don't harden your heart towards a brother in need. Don't close your heart. Do not rationalize away help when you can give it to your brother. Jesus addressed the same idea in Luke 10. Parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Very vividly portrayed it. The Samaritan showed what it is to love one's neighbor. He sacrificed in order to do so. In many ways, he, he actually laid down his life for a stranger, not even a brother. You see, quite simply, loving in words alone is not love. 
It's very similar to what James wrote of faith in James chapter 2. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Love without deeds is not love. It's not. We have to love indeed and in truth. What we do is to be consistent with the truth, with the gospel, but the gospel also motivates us. It is, it is sacrificial love. We are motivated in that. This is, that. That's how we show the love that we've received in Christ. We love because we've come to know the love that has been given to us first. We love in the manner he showed. He came to be served, or to serve, not to be served. So John's very strong on this call to love. He's not done with it, the letter. He's going to keep going through it because I think we have a, a pretty strong tendency to rationalize away and to close our hearts in love. It's clear we're not to neglect this call. It's an integral aspect of the Christian life. It's not an option to love your fellow brothers and to lay down your lives for them. This is what it is to be a believer. This is how we know in many ways. But John doesn't stop here. After this discussion and kind of laying out what it means and what it looks like to love, that it cannot just be in word, but that it has to be in deed, that it's, it's, it's helping a, a brother or sister in need and, and, and telling us what the response of the world will be in our love, that we may be hated in all this, he moves to what I think can be a pretty normal next step in our hearts and in our minds. When we consider the demands of love, and that's that we're not all that confident we've done it very well, that our hearts can condemn us and accuse us. Look at verses 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. See, John wants us, okay? John, John's MO in this, in, in this letter is to give assurance, reassurance, to help us know that we have eternal life as believers, as followers of Christ. His heart is for that assurance. He's spoken in ways that have expressed confidence in these believers and their relationship with God. He, he says, I know, I, I know that we have passed out of death into life. And then he uses this phrase, whenever our hearts condemn us. Because that happens, doesn't it? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I could. And I'm sure everyone would go up of, have, has your heart ever condemned you? The voice that we often hear tells us how we have failed, how badly we have failed, how poor of a Christian we are. And listen, the call to love is daunting. And it's far-reaching. None of us have fulfilled it. Not a one. We've all failed at it. In fact, we have certainly all, at some point in time, closed our heart toward a brother and sister in need. Whether overtly or a bit more acceptably in polite society, we've done it. 
So what do we do when we hear that voice of condemnation that we have all failed? Because John writes, John, John writes, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Okay, but when I, when I just read through that and I read through that quickly, <laughs> that's not all that comforting to me. How's that reassuring in so many ways? Because I, think about it for a second. I can see quite often, and I can hear, my, my heart does a pretty good job of condemning me. And I don't know everything. I don't know all the, I can't remember all my thoughts, all the ways I've screwed up, all the ways I've messed up, all these things, how I've failed. But God knows everything. He absolutely knows where I've failed where I failed to love. And that's why I think that phrase, though, beyond the he knows everything, that God is greater than our hearts is so key. And then understanding the context. And, and we're going we're gonna to get to it here further on, so just hang with me. But, but what is our tendency when we hear these accusations? When you hear these accusations and your heart starts to condemn you, what's your tendency? For some, it's, it's we turn more and more inward and we move toward despair. And we, we start spiraling down because of it. But if our hearts are troubled and if we feel guilt and shame, John's telling us here that God is greater than our hearts. And I think what he's saying to us in many ways is we need to turn to truth, to the truth we find in Scripture and in the gospel. It's not actually good to live in that frame of mind, okay? I think most of us would, hopefully all of us would agree with that, that it's not good to live in the frame of mind where we're constantly, our hearts are condemning us, where we're hearing that voice and we're believing that voice. You know, we have failed. That, that is true. So what do we do? And what has John already told us that we should do when we sin, when we fail? We go to God. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We go to Him. And this is all very vital for us to know. But I think there's another aspect, because when you, the start of verse 19 says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. And so, is the this referring backward or forward? And I think some of this looks back. Now, John, of course, wants us to constantly look to the grace of God, look to, look to Christ and see what He's done. But specifically, he wants us to look to how the grace of God has worked in our lives and enabled us to love. Because those in Christ have done that. We have loved. And we've probably loved quite well in many times because of the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit in our lives. He wants us to see the Spirit-driven acts of the love of God that, that, that has been worked in us because that does display a relationship with Him as we can look back and we can see by this we know because we've loved. We can reassure our hearts because our hearts are still going to condemn us at times, but we can look back. We can, we can look to the grace of God, but we can also look back to how we have loved. I know that God is at work and that, that that process of becoming more and more like Christ takes time. It doesn't happen in an instant. The Christian life is one of growth, and we give thanks for what God has worked in our lives. And He wants us to move into a place of confidence. God is greater than our hearts. Yes, He is. He knows it all, but He also knows what's true of us. 
because he's called his children to himself. He knows that, and he knows where we've loved. He knows where we have failed to love. But let us look to the grace of God in that and reassure our hearts. And then we see in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. You see, John wants us to live in a place of confidence. He wants us to answer that condemnation rightly and to live in confidence, a place where our heart is not condemning us. And obviously the Lord deals with our guilt, but He also wants us to have that confidence because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. We live by faith. We live by faith in Him. We, we trust Him. That was what pleased God in reference to Abel's offering, is that He offered it by faith. We need to continue to live by faith. Our obedience to His commands and doing what pleases Him. Folks, as we do that and as we more consistently do that, it strengthens our fellowship with the Lord. It strengthens our resolve. It strengthens our confidence. As we do it by faith, not, not to earn something. And so there's, there's a balance here. Yes, I know. But we are called to obedience. A clear conscience, a clear conscience will lead to confidence and boldness. If you know you're doing right, if you trust that God's working and you are doing right, it's much easier to go to God confidently. John wants that for his readers. He wants that for us. It's not ultimately confidence in ourselves, but in the Spirit of God working in our lives and changing us. See, John moves to define as well at least a, a portion of the commandments that he references when he talks about that we, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, if any of you have the, the Reformation Study Bible, it's a great Bible, got some good helps in it. And I just want to actually read the comment that they have under this section because I think it's extremely helpful. They wrote this. They said, the two parts of this commandment parallel the two parts of the Ten Commandments, reminding us that the Christian's relationship with God takes precedence over his relationship with his neighbor. Faith in Christ relates us rightly to God and his renewing grace enables us to love one another. So we're to believe in Jesus Christ, kind of, in a sense, dealing with the first table of the commandments, and then we are to love our brother, dealing with the, the second table. It's, it, it all flows out of faith in Christ and His renewing grace. Believing Christ and loving one another, that is evidence of abiding and remaining in God. And also that God abides in us. That's an amazing picture. I not only think that we remain with him, but that he's in us as his children. John sounds so much like Jesus here, which doesn't surprise us since he spent a lot of time with him. But listen to John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
We've been given the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in us, um, drawing us nearer and nearer to God, at work enabling us as well and empowering us to love. The renewing grace of, of, of Christ working through the Spirit, enabling and empowering us to love. And we need to have eyes open to see that. That's part of this call. There's this call to love, and there's this call to have confidence to see that the Spirit is at work in the hearts and lives of believers. This text as a whole, I think, calls us to two things. To love one another. Just to love. Love one another. And understand what that means. And to be confident before our God. To be confident. And those things work hand in hand. The reality, folks, is love is hallmark of the Christian. It's hallmark of the Christian. How we love, how we genuinely love others, displays our trust in God. Because giving sacrificially in love can hurt. We have to give up something we wanted to do or wanted to be able to get. And yet we love sacrificially to serve and to love a brother or sister in Christ. We trust Him that He's called us to lay down our lives for others. And living in that manner will engender confidence in our fellowship with Him. Give us boldness as we go to the throne of grace. Here is a call to obedience as well. And it's a good and necessary call. We, I, I, I want to emphasize grace, absolutely, but grace does not excuse us from obedience. Grace actually empowers our obedience. It's by the Spirit at work within us that we are strengthened to believe and obey more and more. And the Spirit within us, what we trust and we pray and we look that he, that he directs our hearts more and more into the love of Christ because the more folks that we know of the love of Christ and the more we experience his love, I really believe that that's going to overflow into our love for others. That will empower our love for others. As we know the gospel more deeply in our hearts, we will more and more exhibit the life that's been changed by the gospel to the world around us, and in particular to our brothers and sisters in Christ who need, um, who have needs, but who, who need to be loved. We all need it in some way, shape, or form. We need the love of the brethren in our lives. That could be it could be financial needs. That could just be someone sitting with you. It could be all kinds of things that sacrificially takes time. But that's what we're called to, to love and to love well. And I'm thankful that we have a church that does that. And my call in many ways is let's excel still more. Let's continue to love and to love well because of the love of Christ that we've come to know and rest in more and more each day. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would guide and direct us into your love, into the love of Christ, that we would know that love well, that we would rest in it, that you would draw us more and more to your Son. Father, thank you for 
for all that you've given us. Lord, thank you for the, the beauty of love, the beauty of the Christian community that loves. Father, just work in our hearts and change us and draw us more and more to conformity to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.